Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today, God continues to speak to us from the gospel according to John. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, in the Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian, uh, have we seen this show? So good. Uh, So, in The Mandalorian, the Mandalorians are people from a variety of different backgrounds, uh, even different species, uh, but they're all bound together by a central language, by a central creed, a central code. And so whenever they are speaking to each other and they want to affirm their commitment to this creed, to this code, what do they say? Anybody know? This is the way. This is the way. Again, such a good show. But this proclamation... Uh, is actually very important to them because as they traverse the galaxies, uh, as they begin interacting with uh, uh, people of differing beliefs, as they're confronted with alternative ways of living, their orienting and centering force is their creed. It's their way, right? It's what they believe to be true. It is their life. It is their way. Now, I would argue that most creeds, most codes, most uh, faiths and belief systems function this way. There's this orienting, centering commitment to a particular way of life, and when confronted with differing perspectives, many reference back to the commitments uh, that they believe to be true. But the Christian faith is actually uh, something a bit different Uh, The Christian faith certainly has commitments, certainly has creeds and codes, so to speak, 
But the orientating and centering force of the Christian faith is not a creed, but rather it's a person. And as a result, the Christian faith presents something radically different than the Mandalorian code or any other code for that matter. And in our passage, we see exactly why the Christian faith is so distinct. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a, a series looking at the book of John, uh, a series that we've called The Public Faith. And throughout the series, we've been looking at some of the central claims of the Christian faith. And each week, our goal has been to try to examine the claims so that we might see why the Christian faith, and Jesus in particular, is so distinct and as a result, worthy of belief and worship. Our hope through this series is that we would all be confronted by the claims of Jesus, but that we would be, at the same time, also deeply encouraged by what we're presented and the promises that Jesus makes. And today, maybe more than most weeks, Jesus presents us with claims that are deeply confronting, but also deeply encouraging, if we would have ears to hear. So with all that in mind, let's consider the major claims that Jesus makes here in our passage. Specifically, let's look at Jesus, uh, what he means when he says, I am the way. Then let's look at what he means when he says, I am the truth and the life. And then finally, I am with you. Right? So first, I am the way. So to begin, we again need to address the very bold claim that we are seeing here. Uh, If you remember, the very use of this whole idea of I am that title, I am, is of great significance. This is, again, one of the seven different I am statements um, that Jesus, uh, where Jesus takes this title, I am, upon himself. Uh, the I am title was the very name that God took for himself in the book of Exodus. Uh, and so Jesus not only utters this name, which for many at the time would have been uh, completely out of, out of line. Many would not even speak this name of God out of reverence for that name. But not only does Jesus say it, but but he also takes it upon himself as his name. And so at this point, again, if you've been with us, you have heard uh, that t- uh, you've heard us point this out time and time again, but we need to consider how significant it is that Jesus is taking that name for himself, especially in view of how many at the time would have seen Jesus and also how many today also see and understand Jesus. And what I mean by that is, you know, every world religion and even many secular people, think very highly of Jesus. The reason is that they often view him as a a wise teacher, a compassionate advocate, a humble and gentle man that we should emulate. And we would also say that all that's true. Christians believe that to be true. But Christians believe additional things about Jesus because of what Jesus claims. And most of the time, when people begin to claim the things that Jesus claims— They actually aren't wise people, compassionate or gentle or humble people. Rather, when people begin claiming what Jesus claims, they actually tend to be narcissistic, self-absorbed, delusional cult leaders. And when you hear some of the words of Jesus, we're really confronted with one of two options about him. Either number one, he is what he's claiming to be, or Jesus is a narcissistic, self-absorbed, delusional cult leader. But honestly, when we take his words seriously... Again, we need to either see him in one of these two categories, and I don't know how often we take seriously how bold his claims about himself truly are. Plus, the things that people usually find special about Jesus 
uh, or the things that he tends to be most known for, especially amongst other world religions or philosophies, those things really aren't that special. They really aren't that unique, meaning there have been many wise teachers. There have been many compassionate advocates. There have been many gentle and humble leaders. Jesus, in that regard, wouldn't be that unique or special. But the thing about Jesus is that while, again, I agree with all of that, we also need to see that Jesus, though he was gentle and humble, Jesus was also not very modest at all in the way that he thought about himself. Again, he's quite bold in his assertions about himself, which, if not true, those claims are incredibly odd. Let me just give you some examples of what I mean. Last week, we looked at the death of Lazarus. And when Mary and Martha, his sisters, said that they believed uh, that there was a coming resurrection, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus, when he, when, he, when he heard them say that they believe in a coming resurrection, Jesus didn't say, good. You know, I'm glad that you believe that God will one day bring a resurrection. Remember what he said? He said, I am the resurrection. It's a pre- pretty curious response. Uh, in Luke 6, when Jesus was confronted about his actions on the Sabbath, do you remember his response there? He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? In John alone, he has claimed to be the bread of life that will fully satisfy us. He's claimed to be the light of the world by which all that is true can be seen. Even at that time, if you remember, Jesus was hearkening back to Genesis 1 when God said, let there be light, claiming himself to have been there. All right, Jesus may have been a humble, gentle leader in that he cared for the poor, the widow, and the downtrodden, but he was not modest at all. He had some wild claims about himself. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because this claim of Jesus in our passage might be the most jarring and confronting of all of them. Because what we see in our passage, the famous aspect of this passage is that Jesus here does not say that he is one way to God. He doesn't say that he knows the way to God. He doesn't even say, I can point you to the way toward God. Rather, Jesus, in our passage, says, I am the way, the only way to the Father. Now, whatever you think you may have found, Jesus is saying to us. Whatever way seems like it's working for you in your life, whatever meaning or purpose or direction that you claim, they are all, at best, penultimate, right? All lacking fullness. They are all leading you astray if they are not leading you to me, the way, Jesus says. Now, there are different levels of confrontation here, even as we describe this you know, because first, Jesus, he's, uh, Jesus's claims mean that every world religion, every philosophy, every way of life that does not view him as the way is fundamentally flawed. And especially in modern times, that's a very confronting notion. You know, that's not to say that every claim that every religion or philosophy has is wrong, meaning whatever is true within different religions and philosophies is true, but it's only true because he is the source of that truth as the way. They are at best, with their truth, pointing to the way. They could never actually be the way itself. For example, if a religion or a philosophy says that we ought to be compassionate, 
That's not wrong. In fact, that's correct. But it is only correct because Jesus, the one through whom all things are created, makes it correct, makes it true. If a religion or a philosophy says that we ought to love our enemies, be merciful to the downtrodden, to stand for justice, they're not wrong. In fact, they are correct. But they are only correct because Jesus, the one through whom all things are created, makes it true. Jesus' claim is that we must not view him as an option or a way to discover truth and the way, but rather that he himself is that way. So, if you are here and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, you're not quite sure what you believe about the Christian faith, I think we need to wrestle with the reality that Jesus is confronting us with that idea. What do we believe about Jesus? Do we believe what he claims to be? And if we don't, what is the alternative? Because he's making some wild claims here. It seems to me the alternative would be that he's a delusional, self-absorbed cult leader. But if he's not that, and we're going to take his claim seriously, then what does it mean for Jesus to actually be viewed as the way? Because he's either what he claims to be, or he's nothing at all. But there's another layer of confrontation that's happening here, a layer that I think is actually necessary for Christians to consider. So if you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the temptation that we're going to have is to claim Jesus as the way, but then live and think in ways that are contrary to that reality. We so easily and fundamentally live as though Jesus is not the way because he's not center of our lives and our thinking. You know, every time I choose to think or live in ways that are contrary to his commands or expectations, am I not implicitly rejecting him as the way, the one to be trusted as the way? You know, in our, in our lies, our greed, our lusts, our selfishness, our lack of integrity and generosity, our unkindness, our arrogance, our combativeness, our impatience, our lack of gentleness or compassion or justice, we implicitly state that we do not trust that Jesus is the way, but rather our way or the world's way is better. And while we'll say more about that in a moment, for now, in here, in this way, whether we are Christians or we're still processing what we believe about the Christian faith, we should all be jarred and confronted by Jesus' claim to be the way. But of course, he doesn't just stop there. He also goes on to make additional claims. He claims to be the way and also the truth and the life. Let's look at that for a moment. I combine these two ideas, truth and life, uh, on purpose because they both emphasize uh, all the more what Jesus is actually saying about being the way. Specifically, Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. What do I mean exactly by that? Well, in the beginning part of John's gospel, uh, John presents a very, again, controversial idea. Uh, if you were with us during the beginning part of our series, we looked at this, but he started, John starts addressing this notion of the Logos. And if you recall, in Greek philosophy, the Logos was the purpose or the, the meaning of existence. It was ultimate truth. 
It was the intangible yet orienting force of the entire universe. The Logos wasn't something that you could touch or feel or study or measure, but it was through the Logos that we understood everything within our existence. And John argued at the beginning part of his gospel that this truth, this Logos, this capital T truth, had now come in the flesh. The objective nature of truth was embodied in the person of Jesus. And this idea was controversial then, again, just as much as it's controversial today. If Jesus is the embodiment of truth, then if I am to discover what is ultimately true, then again, my life, my thinking, my convictions, my passions, my meaning in life need to revolve around him as the way, the truth, and the life. And in this claim of truth, Jesus is making clear that he, if he is not to us the truth, then whatever else we might be believing is ultimately deception, if not rooted in him. We really need to sit with that tension long enough, I think, to feel the weight of it because no one wants to believe themselves deceived. Everyone thinks that they know and hold some measure of truth. But Jesus is making clear that unless he is the centerpiece of those conceptions, then we will be susceptible to deception. And we don't want to admit it, but more often than not, we allow other things to shape our our, uh, understandings of truth. More often than not, our understanding of what is true is the result of external forces that maybe come from our culture or come from the ideas that we may uh, interact with or uh, come in contact with. They tend to be uh, informed by our period in history, right? The, The place in which we all live right now so often shapes our understanding of truth instead of Jesus being that source of truth. And the difficult task for all of us is the necessity of untangling Jesus as truth from the messy web of our own captivity to cultural ideas or time-bound moments and maybe even our own sinful inclinations. And here's what we all need to wrestle with, understanding that Jesus is the way, which again means he's the centerpiece of our conceptions of truth and life, means our entire lives without reservation need to be centered on him. If he is the way, the truth, and the life, then every aspect of my life should honor and glorify him as that center. I mean, let's, let's get like, uncomfortably practical about this for a minute, right? And consider how this plays out. I mean, consider the different areas of our life that tend to take center stage, right? The things that we spend the most time uh, processing or uh, engaging with in life. You know, think about our, our careers and our jobs, for example, whatever they might be. A big question that we need to ask ourselves is, is Jesus at the center of my work life? Do I see my job as a a way of honoring and glorifying him, or is it a way to honor and glorify myself? You know, in my family life, is Jesus at the center of how I love and serve my family? You know, do I honor and glorify Jesus in the way that I love my wife, my kids, and beyond? Or... Am I selfish, self-serving, self-oriented? You know, in my generosity, is Jesus and his generosity to me the fountain for my own generosity towards others? Or do I honor and, uh, do I honor and glorify Jesus in how I am generous? Or do I care little, give little, serve little? 
You know, in our sex lives or views of sexuality, is Jesus at the the center of how I view sex and the body? Do I honor and glorify Jesus in the way that I view my body and the body of others? Or do I prioritize pleasure over purity, momentary fulfillment over godly self-control? In the way that I, I love my neighbor, especially those that are different than myself, is, 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 than myself, is the way that I love and care for those that are around me, glorifying and honoring to Jesus? Or do I care more about myself and my own self-protection than I do the good and the flourishing of others? We could go on and on. But the point being that if Jesus is the way, and as a result, the truth and the life, then all aspects of our lives ought to center on him as such. And if they don't, then I wonder if we really believe his claims at all. And to press this further, Jesus shows us the consequence of what it means to not see him as the way, the truth, and the life. Look at uh, verse 6. Starting in verse 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Let me pause there. So, in positive terms... If it is true that when we see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and that in knowing him, we can, we can as a result of this, know the Father, right? If that's true, then the negative sense must also be true. That if we don't see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, if we don't know him, then as a result, we don't know the Father. And I don't know about you, but if I were to take an inventory of my life, to see the extent to which I live as though Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in my life, the conclusion would be a grim one. And what do we do with that? Because all of us here recognize the ways in which Jesus is not the centerpiece of our lives so often. So what do we do with that? I know for, for me that maybe at times can lead to a bit of an existential crisis knowing, again, that I really don't live consistently like he's the centerpiece of my existence. But Jesus, having presented all of this tension, right, confronting us in the ways that maybe we don't view him as the way, the truth, and the life, he doesn't just leave us there in that existential crisis. Because there's also something that we see here that Jesus says that also gives us great hope and answers for us the question, what are we supposed to do with our inconsistency Because after producing all of this tension, Jesus then gives us a promise that gives confidence and rest if we would just see this as true. And this last thing that he says is he says, I will be with you. Let me show you what I mean. I'll tell you what, um, I've read this passage a hundred times, right, over the years in my life. But in preparing for today, this section that I want to read to you, starting in verse 8, really struck me. Let's look at verse 8. Let me read to you just through verse 10, and I'll point out what strikes me here. But in verse 8, it says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Let me stop there. If there was ever a time when you can hear Jesus a bit exasperated by his disciples, this might be it. That question, uh, when he says, do you know me, Philip? 
even after I have been among you such a long time. Basically, guys, come on. We've gone over this already. You should know me better by now. I mean, it's clear here that they are not grasping the fullness of who Jesus is. And frankly, as you track with the disciples throughout the New Testament, you're going to see this has consequences going forward, the ways in which they are so inconsistent with seeing Jesus for who he really is. We're going to see over and over again that they actually continue to fail. Just as an example, we see Thomas in our reading. Well, Thomas, fast forward a bit, is going to famously be known as the guy who doubts Jesus. Another example would be that when Jesus one day ascends, his disciples, uh, if you remember the story, they care more about the restoration of Israel's greatness than the salvation of the nations. Uh, You're going to see Peter Right? Of course, the famous apostle Peter, you're going to see him defend and side with those who are essentially culturally racist against Gentiles. I mean, these guys will fail over and over again. We're going to see the way that they do not reflect Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And that question, again, do you know me even after I have been among you for such a long time? That question still resonates because so often we, like the disciples, are just as inconsistent in not seeing Jesus rightly. And here's the thing. If, we, if our hope is rooted in our ability to always rightly live in alignment with Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, we would, without a doubt, go astray. Because our inclinations are not to see him as a centerpiece of our lives. So many other things will distract us from that reality. But what we see in our passage here is that Jesus after being frustrated with his disciples, confronting them with their inconsistency, Jesus then shifts the conversation away from their failure and now toward a new promise. Look at verse 15. This is what strikes me. So Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promises that he will send the spirit of truth, and through the spirit, he will be with us, and this is the part that I love, forever. Forever. That word this week as I was preparing hit me like a freight train. That he's not going to leave us as orphans, orphans, but that he will be with us forever. See, this is the work of Jesus. This is what Jesus accomplishes. His life, he produces this uh, righteousness that we could not attain, a faithfulness that we could not possibly muster on our own. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross, he deals with the, the consequences of our unrighteousness, the unrighteousness that we produce, so that he might then send us his spirit to empower us, to sustain us. And please hear me, to also lead us away from the allures of these other ways that might distract us and lead us back toward him as the way. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that Jesus sends, leads his people back to Jesus over and over again. In all of our wayward wandering, the Spirit leads us back. And this, my friends, is our hope. This is the hope for the Christian that the Spirit of God is with us, in us, leading us back to Jesus. But how does that happen? 
How is it that we are led back? Well, there's a verse, as I was thinking through this, there's a verse that um, often strikes people when they read it. Uh, and it's in Matthew 12. If you remember that passage, Jesus, he speaks of a sin, if you remember, that is unforgivable. And do you remember what that sin is? The unpardonable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, as a pastor, uh, over the years, people have come to me concerned uh, about that passage. Um, I actually have lost count of how many times I've had this conversation because there's a real concern that people have that they've committed that sin, that they, they, because they've committed it, they cannot be forgiven. And while there's a lot to say about what's happening there in Matthew 12, let me just say a couple of things. In sum, in Matthew 12, the sin that Jesus is referring to is the sin of rejecting who he claimed to be. There were some at the time uh, that when they saw Jesus, they claimed that Jesus did not uh, have the Spirit of God, but rather Jesus had a demon. And so blaspheming the Holy Spirit was essentially calling Jesus a liar. And so... I have always told people, if you are concerned that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, it's probably a good sign because that concerns means that you probably haven't actually committed that sin. But here's why I, I note this and why I draw this out, because there's a really important tension for us to hold. Because on the one hand, Jesus knows the extent to which we will never be able to fully live and completely live in submission to him always trusting that he is the way. All right, we're going to have seasons of our lives in the Christian walk where we are killing it, right? Jesus is our everything, but then there's going to be other seasons where we fail miserably, and most of the time, that's going to be interwoven. And his grace is sufficient in those seasons because he promises to be with us by the Spirit of truth, a Spirit who will lead us back to himself when we go astray. But on the other hand, the way we know that we are being led by the Spirit is by recognizing our need to turn away from our wanderings. And the biblical term for that turning away is a word called repentance. It is the Spirit showing us the areas in which we are not trusting Jesus as the way and by his grace leading us to repent and turn back. And so here's why I draw that notion of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If we have a desire to constantly turn away from our sin and our waywardness, we can be confident that Jesus is with us because that desire is only there by the Spirit's leading. But if we don't have that desire, if we are unconcerned with repentance, unconcerned with Jesus' calling, unconcerned with Jesus' claims to be the way, then I do wonder if we've rejected the Spirit's leading called Jesus a liar, and as a result, fallen into this unpardonable sin. The sin that is unpardonable is the sin of refusing Jesus. And I'll close simply with this. I, I bring all this up because I want us to, on the one hand, certainly see a, a wonderful, beautiful vision of God's great love and grace in Jesus. And the reality that Jesus sends his spirit that we might constantly be brought back to him so that we might be in relationship with the Father as a result of what he accomplishes for us. But I also want us to be challenged by this reality that if we are actually in Jesus, if the spirit is actually with us, that it will constantly, the spirit will constantly be leading us in repentance 
constantly leading us to align our lives with Jesus as the way. And if we don't have that desire, then we might know him not. And my desire for all of us would be that we would know Jesus, because in knowing Jesus, we are in relationship with the Father. If we place him at the center of our lives, we can experience the fullness of what it means for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life which again is to have that relationship with God. And so I pray that we would all come to know Jesus and experience what it means for him to be with us and for him to be with us forever. And to ask the Spirit of God to lead us back to him in all the ways that we have wandered. Trust the Spirit will do that as we ask. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your great grace and your great love that uh, sees us in our waywardness, but that also calls us back to yourself. We thank you that you are a God who is constantly in pursuit of us. And we thank you that it's by your Spirit that we are led back to trusting in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I pray for all of us we would know what it means to hope and rest in Jesus, but that we would also know what it means to live a life of repentance, a life that is constantly seeking to turn away from the things that are not of you and to again return to Jesus. And so, Lord, I ask that even now, your spirit would be at work, revealing the ways that we have not trusted you, loved you, honored you, glorified you in the ways that we should. And as the Spirit brings those things to mind, would that also be an encouragement to us, knowing that the Spirit is with us, in us, forever. So would you both bring conviction and encouragement, even now? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.